I don't know who you are, young lady, but you certainly know how to handle yourself well. Batman! Batgirl? Batgirl? Batgirl! Yes, Batgirl! Biff Bam Pal. This is Batman Land. Our purpose here is quite serious. Each week we chat about the 1966 Batman TV show. We might as well get a few laughs out of it. We discuss the episodes that aired this week on SBS Viceland. My name is Dan Barrett. I work on the SBS site The Guide. And joining me for these episodes is the man that taught me to always keep a spare horse in case of an emergency. It's Nick Bassine. Pleasure to be here. Nick Bassine, we've got two episodes here. We've got The Whale of the Siren, which right. is it's an episode that aired on 28th of September, 1967. Starred Joan Collins. Yeah. Now, I'm not sure if you noticed this, okay? You're getting on in years, your eyesight, maybe not what it was. Joan Collins, bit of a babe. She, um, I think she, she built her career off of um, being um, good looking. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I mean, it is a good career for some. Interesting facts I learned about Joan Collins, because I didn't really know that much about her, and I was doing a little bit of reading here and there. When she was working this episode of the show, it came at an era where she was doing a whole bunch of TV. So we mentioned it briefly in the last episode. Uh, just a few months prior to this episode, you had her doing the classic Star Trek episode, City on the Edge of Forever. Really well-remembered episode of TV to this day. She was doing a lot of TV like that, lots of the genre stuff just being all over the place. While she was working on all these shows, apparently she generated a little bit of a reputation about her, whereby she was supposed to be really hard to work with. Oh, really? So you kind of assume that when you hear the reputation of people being hard to work with, that these are people of whom are long-time, like long-established people in the industry that are usually the stars of shows. But even just as a guest star, apparently she generated that reputation. George Wagner, who directed the episode, and this is information that came from the Adam West autobiography, George Wagner directing the episode, he knew about the reputation and apparently he was hard on her from the beginning. Like, she wasn't acting up on the set. She was a perfectly pleasant, just decent guest star coming through. But he really went at her to make sure that she wasn't going to engage in any of the shenanigans that she's been known for. To the point where he had her crying, apparently, on the set. So in order to prevent her from being abusive, he, <laughs> he became abused abusive. her. Yeah. Well, that's a bummer. <laughs> it sounds horrible. And I thought she was pretty good. She's really good in this. I was really quite taken with her. I think she has a really good presence. She kind of moves really well. And she, I wish they had given her a different siren song. That was a, that's a huge bummer. Our problem is that we're watching it in an office environment with headphones on. Oh, man. And, and that was brutal. Yeah, it's a horrible, shrill sound. Why didn't they give her a, a song? Something melodic. Well, I mean, she's supposed, it's supposed to be like a siren song. Like, why not? Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, we're discussing two episodes. We've got that. And we've got another episode called The Sport of Penguins, which aired on the 5th of October, 1967. Bring back the penguin. We saw him just a few weeks ago. And also, I think maybe the most fearsome villain that Gotham City's seen, and certainly the most fearsome villain that Batman and Robin have tangled with, Lola Lasagna. Senora Lola Lasagna. Who could ever forget Lola Lasagna? Uh, certainly one of my favorites. Absolutely. But Nick, I know that these all happened, but I don't remember at all what happened in these episodes. Could you please do us the honor of reminding us? Absolutely. Because Siren... No man can resist the stunning note of my voice. Hypnotizes Commissioner Gordon. Your merest wish is my ultimate command. Who sets a trap for Batman and Robin so they can discover their secret identities. It's a beautiful plan. Commissioner sneaks into the Batcave. What are you doing here? Somehow. And confronts Alfred and figures it all out. Obviously this is the Batcave. Ergo, 
that man is Bruce Wayne. Alfred gasses his ass. Batgirl overhears Siren's plans to steal Bruce Wayne's fortune. Siren hypnotizes Bruce Wayne, who signs over his fortune to her, and then she tells him to jump off a roof. I'm going to leap off the roof. Good boy. Batgirl and Robin rescue Bruce Wayne. Robin kicks... Bruce's ass. The siren unhypnotizes Bruce. Commissioner Gordon doesn't remember any of the secrets he learned. Can't remember the last thing I remember. Batman and Robin then pick up on some communication between Penguin and the dreaded supervillain Lola Lasagna. So that's the cliffhanger. And then in the next episode, Penguin steals Lola Lasagna's parasol. You waddling bird! And a book about umbrellas from the library tries to, where Barbara Gordon works. He leaves an umbrella bomb, but Batman and Robin get rid of it. Holy time bomb! Then there's a fight in a glue factory. In glue, glue. Glue factory. Penguin and Lola plan to switch a racehorse for another racehorse, but then they try to steal that priceless book from the beginning. You can't just barge in here and walk off with a priceless folio of famous parasols. And Penguin trips the library alarm. Will they succeed? You got you follow all that, right? That's quite the question. Ends on a cliffhanger. Nick, we won't know the end of that story until next week. I I suspect that we will never uh, know the answer to that question. Is this the lost Batman land? <laughs> no, I'm just saying the level of confusion here is very high. Okay. And I don't understand what's going on episode to episode. I think that's okay. All right. Let's go to the first episode. We're dealing with the siren. We find out that her alter ego is a person named Lorelai Cersei. The namesake of Cersei Lannister. Yes, and Lorelai Gilmore. Right. Mm. That's how I believe that's how it works. Yeah. Uh, it seemed like extraneous information because that really never came into play for any real plot reason. Although Batgirl seems to understand where her lair is just through a bit of thinking through some names where I don't quite understand what the connection was with any of that. People figure out a lot of things on this show with, um, I don't know, just impressive guesswork. Later on, Batgirl says she knows the, she figures out something from woman's intuition. Which is really just a cover because Alfred just told her the information. Yeah, yeah. Which I thought was a massive betrayal of the trust that he has, like, from his employer who he's raised since being a young boy. Yeah, he's kind of a double agent. Yeah, like, he's supposed to be a gentleman's gentleman. And you don't act like a gentleman's gentleman when you start giving away all those secrets. I mean, his boss is a millionaire playboy. God knows what stories he's got to tell. Yeah, it's a little untoward. Mm, incredibly untoward. But I wanted to highlight the name of Lorelai Cersei, because I think the usage of the name Cersei is obviously a very pointed uh, reference. As we all know, Cersei is a goddess of magic. Sometimes she's a nymph, witch, enchantress, or sorceress in Greek mythology. They're a little bit like me in high school. Yeah, very much so. Much like yourself, uh, apparently she's the daughter of the Tyson sun god Helios and Percy, which was one of the 3,000 Oceanid nymphs. Didn't Percy ride um, the unicorn, the flying Pegasus? No, no, that's something else. Oh, uh, that Percy Jackson. Yeah. Yeah, I think different Percy. Yeah, different Percy. Now let's get back to talk about 1966 Batman. <laughs> yeah. Here's a few questions that I have about this episode. Okay. Right at the beginning, we've got Bruce talking to Dick as he's just finished a phone call with Commissioner Gordon. And he says that Commissioner Gordon is their immediate superior. And I found that a little uncomfortable. Because to my knowledge of Batman is that he's a vigilante. And yes, he certainly has a sense of um, authority given to him by Commissioner Gordon and the rest of the Gotham City Police Department. But at the same time, it's not like he's really employed or answerable to Commissioner Gordon. No, the whole point is that he's a vigilante. Yeah. Now, we do know within this episode, uh, within the series, and Commissioner Gordon said this very early in, Batman and Robin are deputized agents of the law. Right. 
So I don't know, maybe it's a bit different. And this could be a 1960s cultural thing because we have discussed about how this show is very square in its politics. Maybe as part of like that law and order sort of rise of the FBI, you've got this sort of thing where it makes more sense for a hero in the mid 60s to be completely legitimate um, agents of law and order. This is, uh, no, this is all about respecting police authority and um, get a haircut, you hippie. That yeah, very much so. But anyway, I just found that really uncomfortable. And they've never really talked about Commissioner Gordon in that way until this episode. Yeah, and the way Commissioner Gordon talks about them, he doesn't talk about them as employees. He, he talks talk- about them as someone he's got to be crush on them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, I think that's that says it all. What do we even say with these episodes? I uh, there was a, a charter moment um, in the first episode when um, Barbara Gordon makes fun of Chief O'Hara's accent. Oh sure, and it's one of those tricky little gizmos that answers in your own voice and, and then replays the messages. Sure, and it is Chief O'Hara. Yeah, I find that very <laughs> uncomfortable. So I mean, I think the Chief O'Hara accent is incredibly racist to my people at the sure. best of times. Yeah. Are you Irish? Yeah, so my dad's side of the family is Irish, well, English-Irish, uh-huh. and then my mom's side of the family is Slovenian. Yeah. Well, I'm also offended by that accent. And then mm. when they make fun of the accent, that's even more offensive. It is offensive. And yeah, quite frankly, I'm aghast at what I experience here. Now, here's the thing with these episodes. First of all, Batman is completely redundant to this episode. We're used to Robin not really serving any function at all within this series. But Batman specifically, like, he doesn't really need to be in the episode for it to work. Well, very interestingly, with these Batgirl episodes, it feels like she is replacing Batman. She's saving the day. She's replacing Batman and Robin. Yeah. They are effectively as useless as we've come to expect. Yeah. At the beginning of the episode, we meet at Barbara Gordon's apartment. And now in Barbara Gordon's apartment, the mystery deepens. Because apparently Commissioner Gordon said that he's going to meet them there. He's under the spell of these Hemptress, the Siren. Right. Anyway, I'm thinking, first of all, for this entire plot to work, good thing Barbara Gordon moves to Gotham. Why was she not in? Oh, she was in um, college somewhere. Yeah, college elsewhere, you know, Metropolis or something. Yeah. So you've got that. So first of all, this entire episode wouldn't work if Barbara Gordon wasn't in the series at this point. In the next episode, the series starts out with a crime happening at the library, like so many other library crimes. Oh, man. And there's an alarm in the library where they keep priceless stuff at just some, at the random public library. Yeah. And the alarm is only triggered to go to, like the alert goes to Barbara Gordon's apartment. Like she's the last standing person between, you know, library thefts and civility. Yeah, surely that's not part of her job description. Also, the Batgirl theme song makes an appearance in this first episode. Um, And the lyrics leave a lot to be desired. Where do you come from? Where do you go? Whose baby are you? What does that mean? Here's the thing. So I love this theme song. I think it is so catchy and fun. (laughs) Lyrics, I agree, fairly questionable. There's a point, and I don't remember if it's in the first episode or the second episode we watched this week, but Bruce Wayne, or maybe it was as Batman, ends up re- like saying the exact same lines that... Whose baby are you? I don't think he says whose baby are you, but it, he says the first three lines in the song. Oh, where uh, does she come from? Where does she go? And I heard that, and it was about the context of the music, and suddenly I thought of Cotton Eye Joe. I'd have been married 40 years ago if I hadn't been knock-kneed Cotton Eye Joe. Where did you come from? Where did you go? Where did you come from, Cotton Eye Joe? Where did you come from? Where did you go? Where did you come from, Cotton Eye Joe? Uh, yeah, that's right. Now, but I'm asking you seriously, what does the song mean when it's saying, whose baby are you? What does that mean? Look, here's the thing. 
you could look at it from modern lens and say it's incredibly awkward just calling a young woman, you know, she's what, 22, 23 years old, yeah. finding her way in the world baby. Can you say cheese baby? It's not baby. It's Lola Lasagna. Senora Lola Lasagna. But let's maybe sort of think about it from a 1960s framework. Mm-hmm. Okay. Maybe it's actually saying, like, who do you belong to? Like, not so much, uh, like, you know, that there's, like, a master or some sort of male that's sort of a dominant. But, like, who does she belong to? Does she see herself as, like, a freewheeling woman? Does she see herself identifying as the crime-fighting force that she is? Does she see herself as a librarian? Is she an agent of the library? Is she an agent of the law? Is she an agent of herself? Listen, I like that you rattled all that off without batting an eye. <laughs> but yeah. that was a huge stretch. <laughs> Whose baby are you? The answer to whose baby are you? I'm a librarian. That does not make any sense. Well, not so much a librarian as much as a operative of the Gotham City State Library system. I have to um, also mention something else that was super creepy. Yes, sir. Um, it was kind of a weekend at Bernie's moment where Alfred is has the unconscious commissioner. He's passed out but he's kind of walking him along. Like he's half walking. We didn't see the scenes where he took them out to the beach and <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, put them on the skis. It is so strange. Uh, the show is, is mystifying. Could that also serve? And I appreciate the last one was a stretch, but I don't think you're going to find this to be a stretch at all, Nick. Could it be that that entire scene with Commissioner Gordon being knocked out by, what's it called? Like the bat spray? The bat um, Thanks to a sizable dose of bat sleep. He is now languishing in the arms of Morpheus. Great Scott. Essentially being propped up and, you know, carried from the Batcave upstairs. Could that be a metaphor for Alan Napier's entire engagement within the series? Because he seemed like he's three quarters asleep for almost every episode we've seen him in so far. Oh, yeah. Well, if you're going to be charitable, you might say that just his character seems like someone who's been perpetually gassed. Mm. Who wakes up in a cloud of gas. A cloud mm. of a dumb, dumb gas. What's that phrase you used in your little synopsis? gassed his ass yeah that's a those words rhyme a little bit and it makes the synopsis more fun <laughs> okay. i found yeah it yeah. was very fun i mean i've i've been getting lots of emails about how clever and creative the synopses are question wouldn't this show be better without robin holy non sequiturs i don't think so robin god you know i'm i've been starting to come around because burt ward seems to have some hand-to-hand combat some kind of training well, there was the like end where he like jumped across on the rope and rescued Bruce Wayne like yeah. on the rooftop. Yes. Yeah. That was the most action we've really seen in the show ever, I think. It was very impressive. Mm. Adam West, I think he throws a good punch, but he's not an acrobat like that. Yeah, but he brings comedy to the show, which I think is important. Whereas Burt Ward, I'm not sure really can have the same claim. I think it's the character's fault. Don't blame Ward. Now, there was talk if there was going to be a fourth season of the show that they would get rid of the Robin character and it would be Batgirl and Batman together. Oh. I'd be okay with that, I think. Oh, I'd be very okay with that. Yeah. If you have any allegiance at all to Robin, is it because of this iconic show or is it because of the comics? That's a really good question. So... The interesting thing about Robin is, outside of this TV show, and I guess a few of the cartoon, subsequent cartoons, Robin hasn't really existed in mainstream culture. Well, he comes into the Burton films, I guess, in Batman Forever and Robin, but no one really remembers Chris O'Donnell in that, do they? It's not like he left it like a major cultural footprint. When I think about Chris O'Donnell, I think about school ties. Oh, looks like so many of us. Yeah. But if you think about those films as well, like you've got Alicia Silverstone playing Batgirl. But in the- and like no one really remembers that either. I think you're underestimating how much 
people remember on this show we have heard people revere those last two movies especially batman forever people think it's amazing yeah i'm very confused by oh, that wait, alicia silverstone was in the well, last she's only one. in batman and robin yeah right mm. robin's not in those nolan movies he doesn't seem to be in the new incarnation of it but i i like robin in the comics i like robin in the comics as well so the thing with robin in the comics is that right as the comics started getting a bit more mature I mean, there's various levels of maturity that you're looking at within comic books. But if you look at what we'd consider to be a modern, mature reading of a comic book, a lot of that started coming in in the mid-80s. And when that was happening, this was during the time of Marv Wolfman writing the New Teen Titans. And through that, he like matured Dick Grayson's take on a superhero identity of his own. And they brought in other Robins coming through. Yeah. So I always have a struggle in my mind to think about Dick Grayson as a viable comic book character. Because at least as Robin, like I've always thought of him as Nightwing. I don't really think of him as Robin because when I came of age, it was really at a point where you had other Robins. Okay. I came around with Tim Drake as my Robin and the knowledge that there was Jason Todd prior to that. Tim Drake wears the long tights, doesn't he? He wears like the full pants and he's also got that real stylized R with a pointy- Yeah, like, better outfit. Now. Definitely a better Much outfit. better outfit. Better character. But I just then, like that kid. But Jason Todd, mm. he's the one that gets- well, he gets uh, brutally murdered by the Joker. Yes. Yeah. Because the fans wanted it. Yeah. So there's an event that takes place in the mid to late 80s called A Death in a Family. It's a four-issue series happening within the Batman comics. And in issue three of the four, you've got the very end of the episode with Robin in the Middle East, I think it is, with the Joker who has brutally attacked him with a crowbar. And then a phone number that you can call to decide whether or not Robin's going to live or die. It is so morbid. It's incredibly morbid. And the fans who did not care for the Jason Todd Robin character, they decided to off the little guy. I will tell you something. I have a, There are several images of Batman, printed images of Batman that I have in my Batman comic that I have in my burned in my memory. And one mm. of them is the Joker's face yeah. bringing the crowbar down and the blood splattering everywhere. It's grim. Yeah. Like they took care of that character in a big oh way. Oh my God. Mm. Man, it gives me chills. I don't remember anything about Jason Todd except for that. I don't know what characterized him or what made him a different kind of Robin. It's probably kind of brassy. So essentially with Jason Todd, he was very much just exactly the same as Dick Grayson when he was first introduced into the show. Batman found Jason Todd on the streets dealing the hubcaps to the Batmobile. That's right. Like, he was just a street kid, but like he was a good natured kid. But then in the mid eighties, they decided to revamp the character and he became like a bit of a punk kid with an attitude. Mm. And from that point in, effectively, he was a more interesting character, but at the same time, like the fans just didn't want to see him as a Robin. What have you thought about the new, uh, it's not Robin technically, but it's Batman's son. I don't have problems with the character. Like, he's kind of fun, but at the same time, I also just don't want Batman to be sort of burdened with having an actual genetic son around. Mm, yeah. There's something that just feels off about it to me. I don't really have a problem with it. It doesn't keep me up at night. I do find it just a bit... What does keep you up at night? <sighs> Mostly just memories of the Batman and Robin movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, such great cinema. I'm going to say that if I have a criticism of Batgirl... It's her fighting style. And we've discussed this. She she refuses to throw punches because it's not ladylike. Mm. But because she only kicks, it makes it look like she's in some sort of dance production. Yeah, which I mean, it's a bit weird because Yvonne Craig, who played Batgirl, she's a professional dancer. Yeah. So I mean, she's always going to have, I guess, that sort of uh, physical build and approach to movement. Yes. But uh, it doesn't make it look like she's fighting. No. I don't really have a huge problem with it. I like the fact that she is quite a different contrast to Batman and Robin. Batman and Robin, who are clearly highly trained in their crime <laughs> yes, fighting. Yes, they are experts. 
with their punches and uh, which makes the uh, the Alfred betrayal so much you know more serious in my mind because Batman and Robin clearly trained and yeah Barbara Gordon like as far as Alfred's aware like Barbara Gordon doesn't have any specific training oh she's just God. an enthusiast to put on the costume what if Barbara Gordon shows up and gets murdered what Alfred's gonna feel about? pretty bad he'd feel terrible he's got a conscience this is very um irresponsible of him Exceptionally so. Now, this episode ruined my theory that Robin may have passed away between seasons two and three. Because <laughs> remember in episodes one and two of the season, no one would talk to him at all. Yes. It was only Batman. Yeah. I thought they were sixth sensing the show. Yeah. But apparently that's no. not the case. People spoke directly to Robin here. Yeah, that was um, that's a huge bummer to realize. Mm. So what I have been liking about the revamped approach to the show, where every episode is kind of its own thing now, You've got a whole lot of activities in the show which they used to just show within these two-parters, mostly fulfilling time's sake, I suspect, a lot of the time. But it was just sort of narrative gaps that they could have just filled in with just a bit of exposition and move on. So case in point for this episode, you've got apparently Chief O'Hara, who was told by the siren to go and jump in a lake. And then you never see him get rescued, but rather he just comes into Commissioner Gordon's office later, soaking wet, and he explains that Batgirl had saved him off screen. And I thought that was kind of good because in the old version of the show, we would have seen that sequence take place. But that's action. You want to see the danger of O'Hara jumping in a lake, possibly drowning. Batgirl comes in and saves him. Oh, look, nothing would make me more happy than seeing Chief O'Hara possibly drowning. But I kind of feel like it was just sort of obvious exposition. But I do like that you've got things just happening off screen now in a way that it's not really being spelled out. I also like that it was Batgirl that went and saved him. Because it just further proves that Batman and Robin are just wasting everyone's time. It's Batgirl that's the real agent of change around the city. Since she showed up, Batgirl has not has not stopped saving people. Mm. That's all she's doing. Like, she's the hero that Gotham deserves. Absolutely. And she's got the theme song to prove it. Yeah, yeah very much so. Now, the other thing I just wanted to flag is in the closing moments of the show, we're introduced to our villains for the next episode. We've got the Penguin rocking up in Gotham. And we know this because in the Batcave, the criminal bat sensor has started beeping with a penguin squawking noise. Yeah. And then we find out that there's a female villain that's entered, an unknown female villain, and we know that she's Lola Lasagna. Now, the Batcave with this Bat computer that's able to trigger off like the knowledge about people of, you know, criminal intent entering the city, is this the birth of some sort of pre-crime system, kind of like in Minority Report? Does the Batcave have an Agatha, some woman in a bathtub lying somewhere around of whom's generating this information? But is this program, is it predicting the a future crime or is it just alerting us to the presence of a criminal? Well, I guess alerting us to the presence of a criminal, but I'm thinking that it's people of criminal intent. Right. So obviously there's some sort of pre-crime knowledge taking place because the computer knows they plan to commit a crime. But in this show, in all of the Penguin episodes, he starts off as a legitimate businessman somehow. Exactly. So why are they? Why is there an alert? Exactly. He's just a man trying to make a go of things. Yeah, he's just um, trying to uh, get in on a horse race. Shall we now move into episode two, The Sport of Penguins, which aired initially on the 5th of October, 1967? We can, but if we, if we do, I'm afraid we'll never get out of it. Just because it's that compelling an episode? It's like a house of mirrors. Well, it seemed like a fairly open, wide space at Gotham Park Racetrack where the episode opens. Oh, you know what? That would have cost some money. Like actual exterior shooting. That would have blown the budget. We were chatting about this before we started recording the podcast today. 
with these two episodes and Nick now realizing just how little money they're spending on it, yeah. like every scene is taking place indoors somewhere on the same two or three sound stages. Yeah, so that's impressive. Mm. Now, I have to say that Ethel Merman, um, the guest star, is a tremendous treat for me because her singing style, like when you think of a typical Broadway song, a Broadway belter, just a real show tune, well, at least I, I think of Ethel Merman belting it out, super loud, super proud. And then more significantly, I think of the scene in Airplane. Now for me, I'm going to plead a fair bit of ignorance here. My entire knowledge of Ethel Merman really comes from references to her from things like Animaniacs, where right. they'll talk about Ethel Merman. So you've never but seen Annie Get Your Gun? I don't think I have. Like, I don't think I've seen any films that she's in. Is she predominantly a Broadway performer? Yes. And, but she's in um, the movie versions also. Did you listen to any of her performing? Like, I may have at some point in my There's life. There's no business like show business. Oh, Nick, like, you're taking me there right now. Like that kind of, that's her thing. Yeah. Like, even today, if I'm, if I'm around people who are inclined to make these kinds of jokes, if they start singing, um, start singing songs about whatever's going on, it's that style. Yeah. And also, you can kind of hear it when she's talking. She has got a voice, a serious voice. That's the only thing I have to show for my three weeks of marriage to Luigi Lasagna. What? The billionaire South American playboy? Not exactly a playboy, Pengy. Luigi's almost 80. Now, the thing that I've definitely seen her in is Flying High. Which I call Airplane. Yeah. Right. Still hilarious. She nails that, and it's just a, an amazing scene. Oh. What's his problem? It's Lieutenant Hurwitz. Severe shell shock. Thinks he's Ethel Merman. You'll be swell. You'll be great. Gonna have the whole world on a plate. Starting here. Start now. Honey, everything's coming up. War is hell. Can we just talk about the Flying High Airplane name convention for a moment? There reaches a certain point where, and this happens in movies a lot internationally, where you've got one name in the US where the film's been produced, but when it gets played internationally, they give it a different name. So the case in point here, we're talking about the movie that a lot of the world knows as Airplane. In Australia, we call it Flying High. And I think when it gets broadcast on TV, it's still Flying High, because that's predominantly what it's remembered as. Because you don't have, that word doesn't exist here. It's aeroplane. Yeah. Because we speak the Queen's English. That's right. Mm. Why couldn't they just change the spelling? Yeah, but I don't understand. Like, surely we're smart enough to know that airplane is just how Americans talk about the planes. Like, it's not, you know, we're fairly smart. We can figure these things out. I think we're okay with things. What was the sequel called? Flying High 2? Yeah, Flying High 2, the sequel. Okay. Yeah, as opposed to Airplane 2, the sequel. Yeah, right. Yeah, and I started thinking about other films like this, where you've got, say, the movie that we in Australia knew as A Night Out on the Town, but in America, the Swingers. great Chris, uh, sadly not, <laughs> the great Chris Columbus movie, uh, Adventures in Babysitting. A night out on the town. A night out on the town. Because babysitters don't exist here? Well, this is it. Like, I don't understand why they made the change, but I'm pretty sure that when that movie gets played on TV now, in the rare instances it does, which is a shame it's not more often because it's a classic people. Sure. Even though it does have Marvel affiliation with the younger characters interested in the character of Thor, but we'll push aside that and get back to the sort of essence of the conversation at hand, I'm pretty sure when it gets played here now, it gets called Adventures in Babysitting. So at what point did we drop a night out on the town and feel that that was okay to start calling it Adventures in Babysitting, but we're not willing to do the same thing for Airplane, which is the more superior name, I feel, than Flying High? Flying High 
is terrible because the point of um, Airplane is that it, it's making fun of disaster movies. But a specific disaster series of films called Airport. Was yes. it Airport 76? Yes, Airport 76 is the name. There was a movie that they were they just stole the script from. And, yeah, uh, I think it's and called uh, it. Zero Hour. Could be Zero Hour, like Midnight Zero or something. Zero's in there no, somewhere. Zero Hour, that's, that's it. Um, so that just makes it seem like it's a kind of a goofy, here comes a wacky comedy, everybody. Whereas everyone is playing everything so straight. It kind of betrays the movie a little bit, I think. Yeah. And also there's that other Zaz film, Top Secret, as they knew it in the US. But as we know it here in Australia, it was called, Have You Seen My Files, Please, Sir? Are you serious? No, that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's pretty good. But anyway, yes, Ethel Merman is brilliant in, air, in Flying High. Everyone should um, go watch it. And yeah. it's also my favorite movie of all time. Your wallpaper on your work computer is the Flying High poster. It or is. airplane, as you would term it. Yeah, it's a plane tied in a knot. Mm, bringing cultures together. That movie never stops making me laugh. That's fair. Even right now, you've got a big smile on your face. I'm loving it. Yeah. In this episode, don't you think it's an incredible coincidence that Lola Lasagna, or as the character's real name is... Lulu Schwartz. Lulu Schwartz. But she ended up marrying a guy... Well, she took on the name of Lola Lasagna, yeah. married, was it Luigi Lasagna? Now... But then Luigi, who was an 80-year-old... He was suspicious that she was only marrying him for his money. And so he ended up getting a divorce. And then in the divorce trial that took place, the judge didn't award her any money. She only gave her the horse. Yeah, right. It's an intricate web. But also, I just find it weird that the horse's name was Parasol. And at the same time, at the Gotham City Library, there was a main display about parasols. <laughs> it's a happy coincidence. The odds of that are pretty phenomenal. I found it even weirder that, and I think um, fans of the SBS charter will uh, appreciate this. <laughs> yeah. Uh, his name is Luigi Lasagna, but he's a South American playboy, even though he has a weirdly cliched Italian name. Yeah. That was a little strange. Now, do you know what the deal is with the whole background with Luigi Lasagna um, and how it relates to Ethel Merman? No. Okay, so this is in classic Batman 1966 style. They'll have these weird little references and backstories that they give characters. And it's a very humorous thing for people to watch back in the day because they understand what they're talking about. Here, this information's lost to the sands of history. Uh, essentially, what the deal was is Ethel Merman had gotten married a few years prior to Ernest Borgnine. Oh. I believe it was three years prior. And so that's what the three-year marriage Luigi was in reference to. Did she, had she split up with Ernest Borgnine? Yeah, I guess so. Oh my God. I love Ernest Borgnine. Who doesn't? Can I ask you a question about um, guest stars on this show? Yeah, sure. Shoot. Now we're in 1967. The Vietnam War is raging, as mm. discussed several times on this show. And their choices of guest stars, and I appreciate that the ratings are flagging. Maybe uh, the hottest people don't want to show up on this show, but it's a kid's show. Mm. Why do I feel like all the guest stars appeal only to people over 70 years old? Let me just give you a list of the people that were hot in 67. Paul Newman, Warren Beatty, Faye Dunaway, Sidney Poitier, Dustin Hoffman, Anne Bancroft, Catherine Ross, the Bee Gees, Rod Stewart. Any of these people would have made amazing guest stars. Why are we getting Ethel Merman? As much as a she's a beloved Broadway, um, what have you. I think this is all very valid. And what's her face? Um, the star, that other movie star that was on a few weeks ago, um, um. Tallulah Bankhead. 
Okay, now can I maybe just put this back at you? A conversation that I began on this podcast with our previous guest, Andrew Mikado, but you and I have discussed this a little bit as well, is that the show isn't necessarily speaking to what we see as the culture of the 60s. Rather, when we think back to the 60s, we think about the counterculture that existed, right, and not necessarily the mainstream culture. Whereas the Batman show is an incredibly straight series, which is playing very much to the mainstream culture and to the very sort of uptight, non-counterculture well, then it's let me like ask counter, you. Counterculture in a let lot me of ways. ask you this then: Is this? Are we talking about '60s TV broadly, or is it just this show? Like, were movies where the counterculture was, and not TV? Well, I think that's definitely true when you get into the late '60s, early '70s, because you got that thing where a lot of like the movie studios were all falling apart. Like, there was no money to be made in movies anymore, and that's when they started getting really experimental. That's when your easy writers come along, and like you mentioned, Dustin Hoffman earlier with The Graduate. Yeah. Like that wasn't like it was the like a mainstream sort of a film. That was trying to tap into that youth culture of the moment. But these are. I mean, all they the people had they those hippies, Simon and Garfunkel, to do the soundtrack. Yes, but these were the people winning prizes. Yeah, but Simon and Garfunkel are weed smokers, Nick. <laughs> well, have it. I don't know. Has that ever been proven necessarily? I'm sure they. Maybe that. That might be a bit of slander just now. I'm comfortable going on a record that Simon and Garfunkel may have enjoyed a little bit of the jazz cigarette. Were there any 60s TV shows, even late 60s, that were counterculture? Or because it was much more of a mainstream Joe Meatball medium, was it much more straightforward, like uh, I Dream of Jeannie and Flipper? So I would maybe say that the 1960s is that interesting era of TV where you got some very straight shows like Batman, which when you look at it, you think this would be playing to the counterculture, but it's not really like we've watched no. this show now for two seasons going yes. through. I think it's very clearly speaking very much to mainstream cultural beliefs and acceptance. Yeah. But there are shows coming through which are really speaking to that youth culture that was starting to take its hold in the 60s. And I'm thinking primarily things like maybe like The Monkees. Oh, yeah. All right. I Dream of Genie, and look, I haven't really watched that show for many years, so I haven't really watched it with adult eyes, or at least critical adult eyes. But to my memory, that's something which was really playing a bit more with the idea of sort of younger, um, hipper people, where it's sort of about single people getting involved in shenanigans. It's not like it's like Bewitched, which is like a very regimented family unit. And while, yes, it takes place within a military-style environment of, you know, NASA... I still think there was a lot of times where you've got Major Nelson and Major Healy, of whom are both, you know, working against the best interests of uh, NASA at the time, really, in a lot of regards. They're trying to hide their, uh, you know, genie lady. I guess when I think of Star Trek, I think of something that pushes boundaries and maybe is hooked into counterculture a little bit more. Yeah, and that show's weird because you think of that being a bit more of a mainstream culture sort of a show. But when you actually watch it, like it's talking to communist rhetoric, it's really pushing a lot of social boundaries. The things that we know the show for today. But outside of that, I just can't think of any TV shows. Next time I'm going to research properly and uh, check it out. Because movies of the time Mm. definitely started... Have, leaning heavily into youth youth culture. Yeah, but we're also sort of trapped in the idea that we're here in 2018, a good 50 years later, and we're trying to really put ourselves in the mind of what the mainstream we're talking about and what we see as being the major cultural events of that decade aren't necessarily evident at the time. Like, if you're looking at 2018 from right. 50 years from now, people might be looking back thinking that The Good Fight was maybe the big cultural show of the moment, but realistically, all we're doing is talking about, like, the cancellation of Roseanne. I think that's wrong. 
And I'll tell you why. Because you're a time traveler, Nick. Is that what you're trying to tell me? <laughs> because we are aware of the big things that are happening. The good fight will only be seen as a huge cultural shift if it turns out they were right about a bunch of things or they predicted, as an example, predicted something or it turned out or, or it turned out that everyone on the show was in a cult and they did a bunch of horrible but, I mean, things. It's like the Academy Awards. When you look back at the list of films that won the Academy Award, there's so many injustices along the way because you're like, well, what about that film, which was a much better film? But it wasn't a film that was recognized at the time by the mainstream authorities as being the things to really pay attention to. Yeah, but at the time when Bonnie and Clyde comes out, we see it now as revolutionary in terms of the direction the movies go in and in terms of what was going on in the country. And at the time, it was kind of reviewed that way. Maybe not. I don't know what kind of box office it did. I don't know if it was popular. But I mean, the cultural elites of whom critics are definitely part of the cultural elite, they've got a different view on the culture than your mainstream do. Yes, yes, at the time. But I, uh, there's something in me that wants to say that Bonnie and Clyde was popular. Nah. <laughs> see, I don't know. I, I, I really don't I have see, the I hear what you're saying, though. Mm. Because we've got a reduced number of guest stars that are appearing in the show now because of the reduced budget... We don't necessarily have that many people we can pull from. But there was a really interesting guest star in the second episode. It was the character who was a henchman named Visor, the actor Joe Brooks. I thought he was interesting when I went through his IMDb listings. You may know him from a little movie called Gremlins. Oh. Do you remember there was a town member who got around dressed as Santa every Christmas? Oh, maybe. So in Gremlins, there was two references to Santa. There's the character Dave Myers, of whom is dressed as Santa in modern day 1984, 85, when Gremlins is set. You've got that character, but then you've also got the character that Phoebe Cates had as a dad who died in a chimney. So this guy wasn't the chimney Santa, but rather he was the town Santa of the current moment. And he's attacked by the gremlins. I remember there's a shot of him running out of a house to a car and he's got gremlins just ripping away at him at the top. Yeah. So anyway, he played that guy, but that's not the only time he's ever played Santa. There's an episode of Love American Style (laughs) called Love and the Christmas Punch, where he also played Santa. So he, he, yeah, he kind of cornered that market. Yeah. In the two roles that he did over an extensive 40, 50 (laughs) year acting career. Yeah, exactly. That's how you do it. Hey, you remember the uh, warehouse where you've got the glue factory taking place? In Glue, Gluten's Glue Factory. Where you've got every, maybe 90% of the scenes uh, shot on this show. Yeah. In this new season. With the black background and the couple of props that have been set up. Yeah. Did you notice of the props set up, so many of them were just vats filled with different types of glue type products? Because we're in a glue factory. Yes. So I didn't get them all, but I had here, there was putty paste, there was bird lime, Whatever that is. What is is that? I have no idea. Uh, You had adhesive tape. You've got sticky glue. You had library glue. You had hoof glue and hot, hot glue amongst a number of other vats. But what is library glue? That's one of the big questions I have because that leads into the next moment where the penguin covered the Batmobile in a whole bunch of glue, but specifically library glue. I don't know. All I rem- all I know is that I was deeply disappointed and becoming increasingly disappointed in Penguin's um, villainous deeds. Like, is that the best you can do? You cover it with glue? Yeah, I mean, this was a man who owned a movie studio just a season ago. Yeah, a little bit more creativity. Yeah. I will say, though, in terms of creativity, there were two good bits of set dressing creativity for the Penguin. One, when he had his desk at the uh, book... It uh, wasn't the... At the book, it wasn't a publishing company. It was like a book manufacturing company. 
What? In this episode? Yeah, they had a weird name for it when he oh, when boy. they choose the scene. But he was sitting at like this row of telephones that was around in a semicircle, and all the phones had like a little penguin display on the phones. Oh. That was kind of nice. I, I liked was, his little radio. That was the other thing I wanted to point out. He had a penguin-shaped radio, and there was a bit where he listened to the radio, like there was an announcer coming out. Yeah. And do you know who the announcer was? Ethel Merman. It was Ethel Merman. No. <laughs> uh, There's a guy named Gary Owens who has an extensive career as an animation voice actor, but his crowning achievement is he's the voice of Space Ghost. Space Ghost! Oh, really? Yeah. How old is he? Um, I'm not too sure. He actually only passed away two years ago. But was he, he's old as Space Ghost then. He must be in his 60s or something. Oh, well, don't forget, Space Ghost was around in the mid-70s initially. Was it? Yeah, so it's this... Space Ghost Coast to Coast? Okay, so you know Space Ghost Coast to Coast, which is when in, like, what, like, 95, 96, he became like a late-night TV talk show host. Yeah. Space Ghost existed in, like, I think mid-60s Hanna-Barbera cartoons, where you had right. Space Ghost, there was the Herculoids, there was a whole bunch of other mm, characters. Yeah, of course. Because Space Ghost used to get around with Jan and Jace and their monkey Blip. Yeah, of course. Well, sure, Blip. Who mm. can forget Blip? Hey, do you want to know what bird lime is? What is it? It's a sticky substance spread onto twigs to trap small birds. Why would they do that? Why would you want to trap small birds? Can you turn them into glue like a horse? I don't think so. Now, do you know much about the idea of turning horses into glue? I know that, uh, I just know that it happens. Yeah, see, I'd heard that thing, but I wasn't really entirely sure if it was exactly true or what the deal is, but it's completely true. So I've learned that you don't necessarily just need horses to turn them into glue. You can use any number of animals. The reason why horses were used uh, particularly is they're filled with a lot of collagen, and that's a key protein in connective tissues in horses. Oh, God. Yeah. And so you've actually got like a number of animals that can be used in glues. And through my reading, you could easily have a elephant as well as you could a horse and get in the same quality glue. But a animal glue and I guess a vegetable glue. I'm not sure what the other types of glues are. I'm no scientist. I'm not a glue specialist here. But apparently the stickiness of both is effectively the same. So I don't know why you'd want to murder like poor defenseless animals when you could just create glue in another right. way. Be honest with me. How much of you right now wants to turn this podcast into a show about glue? <sighs> glue and glue products. I would say there's a 75% part of me that primarily wants to talk about clag. What the hell is clag? That's the paste that you have as a young child. You know the sort of glue that you'd have like in those sort of white jars that like little kids would eat? Yeah. In Australia, we called it clag. Was that a real word or you just made up a word of it for a pot of glue? I'm not a glue professional. I just know what I ate as a child. I thought you were turning this podcast into a show about glue. I'm turning it in now. I'm not the glue expert yet. Give me two or three weeks, Nick. Who? What kind of guests would we get on a on a glue on a glue cast? On glue land. Yeah. Oh, good question. Do we necessarily want people of whom are knowledgeable about the glue industry, or do we just want glue enthusiasts, people of whom really like arts and crafts? I think you want the um, the entire spectrum. You want people who can um, educate the listener on glue manufacturing. <laughs> Um, what were we talking about? <laughs> oh, there's a Batman fellow. Yeah. I was talking earlier about off-scene rescues and another off-screen rescue. Alfred came and separated Batman and Robin from their beloved Batmobile. Oh, without... Yeah, that's right. It was off-screen. Yeah, we didn't have any payoff for it. Great. Yeah. Way to go. They could have done this whole episode off-screen. <laughs> yeah. And I want to end the episode on a question. 
We see Batgirl, lying, well, as Barbara Gordon, lying in her bed as the alarm goes off because there's been a break-in at the library. Uh-huh. Okay, first of all, I mean, I find it weird that she's the only person of whom is being You'd indicated. think it would be the police or some security A security firm people, and maybe not yeah. the 22-year-old, like, new librarian that you've had yeah. into the organization. Yeah. Okay, I find that a bit weird. But the first thing she does when she's, like, gets the alarm coming through, which is an alarm, like, on the side of her bed, which, you know, a little bit unusual, but she calls her dad because, obviously, you know, commissioner of police, sure. like, you know, he's a person I guess you notify is she doing that in her role as Barbara Gordon or is she doing it as Batgirl? My question is, is Batgirl, much like Batman and Robin, agents of the police or is she a freewheeling agent? Batgirl, I need to ask the question, whose baby are you? Well, listen, I mean, that is, that is the question and will be for the over the course of this third season. I, she's calling her father as, as Barbara Gordon. Is she? Because baby, she says daddy. But Barbara, whose baby are you? You're going a long way to normalizing whose baby are you. It's working. So, Nick, at the end of every Batman land, we do like to take away a major lesson we've learned from this week's episode. I put it to you first. Sir, what lessons did you learn from The Bright Night? You know, when you go to somebody's home or, uh, I don't know, a party or something, somebody offers you a drink. I didn't realize this, but a soft drink can be too relaxing. So Batman gets offered a soft drink at Barbara's apartment and he says, no thanks, we might find it too relaxing. If it was maybe a Coke, Mm. I could see a big compliment like that because it's for the advertisers. But he just wants to come down and say, soft drinks, way too relaxing. Well, I understand, maybe not Coke, because you got some caffeine in it, but like earlier today during lunch, I got myself a like Natural Springs soft drink, and it was like Tahitian lime, and it did feel like a very pleasant, relaxing experience. It wasn't overly carbonated. Yeah, well, all right. Mm. Okay. So, Nick, I've learned a lesson this week. I learned uh, by way of the siren, evil is what makes the world go round. Yes. I mean, I feel sorry for you that you've had to learn that so late in life, mm. because this is something that I've known for quite some time. Okay. Good lesson to learn. Yeah. Yeah. Nick Bassine, this brings us to the end of another educational Batman land. If people want to talk to you about Batman or glue-related products, where do they find you? Please tweet me at soft drinks to relaxing haters or at Nick Bassine. People can find me at the Dan Barrett, and that's on the Twitter. If you've been enjoying Batman Land, please leave reviews or star, depending on what your podcast application of choice likes to do. Helps people find the show and, you know, spread the word of Batman Land. We're plowing through this third and final season. But if you've been enjoying this podcast, you might want to check out some of our other podcasts. There's a little podcast called The Playlist that one Nick Bassine is a co-host on. Where do people find that? What's going on there? Well, Dan, it's a frank and open uh, cultural conversation that um, pushes the envelope in uh, exciting ways. Yeah, and those exciting ways is mostly talking about movies and TV shows. That's correct. Mm. And you can find that at the SBS website. So just do a search for SBS Playlist. You'll find that remarkably easily. Mm. You may also want to check out our colleague Fiona Williams and uh, Mary Assortment of Handmaid's Tale fans as they do a little show called Eyes on Gilead. Each week they talk about The Handmaid's Tale and give a whole lot of insight into that TV show, which is a very rich, nuanced, layered text. The show is? The show. Or the podcast? Both. 
great. But the podcast explores the nuance and the layering while adding its own nuance and layering. So much nuance and so much layering. I mean, they could probably use a little bit more layering, a little less nuance, but we'll see how it goes. It's a developing form. Sure. This is the end of another Batman Land. We'll see you next week, same Batman Land time, same Batman Land channel, as we wrap up this cliffhanger episode. Will Penguin and Lola succeed in pulling off the foulest race-fixing scheme of all time? For more, tune in the next episode. (laughs) 